0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar, Dr. Joy Beattie, to the guest chair today. As we talk about disability awareness, Joy has taught courses in organizational behavior, negotiation, international management, diversity, and leadership. Her research has focused on the experiences of employees with disability and chronic illness, and has been published in many respected journals such as Human Resource Management, International Journal of Human Resource Management, and the Academy Review, to name a few. Recently, she co-edited a handbook on management and disability, as well as a special issue on mental illness in the workplace, which are absolutely must-reads. She is the immediate past Division Chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Division of the Academy of Management, and currently is the Academic Department Head of Management and Associate Professor in the College of Business at Eastern Michigan University. Dr. Beatty. Welcome to Diversity Matters.
1: Thanks, Oscar. I am very thrilled to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking about disability and chronic illness in the workplace.
0: We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors.
1: Philadelphia Ballet is a proud sponsor of Diversity Matters. Philadelphia Ballet is deeply committed to cultivating an inclusive organization where all communities feel a sense of belonging. Through community education and public programs, Philadelphia Ballet seeks to bring more access to dance and education by offering free programming for students of all ages in schools and organizations across the city. Learn about Philadelphia Ballet's commitment to diversity and inclusion on stage and off by visiting philadelphiaballet.org.
0: One of the things you learn as a DEI researcher is how vast this area is, and you learn more and more, you realize just how much you still don't know. Disability awareness is one of those areas that I hear people all the time admit that they feel less comfortable in their DEI knowledge, but generally want to know more. And I count myself in that number as well, which is even why I'm so excited to talk about disability awareness and accessibility issues with one of the world's leading management experts in the area. So, Joy. Let's get started. You have an impressive array of research streams spanning work on work-life balance, management pedagogy, and stigma. So can you tell us what drew you to pursuing
1: disability research? I was initially more in the gender area, and partly that was because of my advisor, Judy Gordon, who had been doing some studies of midlife women. That was sort of where I started. But then when I was in my doctoral program, I had some personal experience with chronic illness. I've had a chronic illness since I was 20. I was an undergrad. And it comes back periodically, you know, every like 10 years or so. And I happened to have a very bad episode while I was in my graduate program. And that gave me some opportunity to reflect on some of the social interaction and performance issues related to chronic illness, because I really see chronic illness as distinct from disability. And this was in the early 2000s. I think a lot of the conceptual thinking then was that, yeah, yeah, disability. It just sort of clumps under disability. But many chronic illnesses do not lead to disability. They may not be disclosed. And there's sort of these performance issues. There could be performance issues. There's also identity issues around how do you see yourself? And do you have like imposter syndrome related to Do you deserve certain job promotions or or recognition? And so it really led me down the path. And I've been pleased that there's been more more awareness around chronic illness as kind of its own thing in management. Certainly, you'll find it in rehabilitation psychology and sort of medical journals. But for us to think about as management scholars, how do these issues matter, and particularly As the diversity fold expands, which I think it's been doing over the last 20 years or so, you're finding more individual differences that are getting thought about through this diversity lens or a minority model lens. And so that was how I got there. Another thing I would note is that many disability researchers seem to have personal experience with a disability, whether it's themselves, or like a loved one or someone that they're taking care of. And I think that personal awareness can really enhance the research as long as you disclose it. And the disclosure piece has become more important over the years at that reviewers often want to see a blurb, you know, paragraph somewhere in your methods that say, I have personal experience with this or Something that just acknowledges that you you're not a blank slate when you're doing your data collection. I mean, is anyone ever really a blank slate? But you're speaking a little bit from personal experience. It helps with data collection too, because people feel that you have some background and awareness, the issues.
0: You bring up a good point. I have been in several conversations lately about this idea of me search and actually legitimizing me search because I do think it's really important for not only us to be cognizant of the perspectives that we have and we bring to the research but there's also value in many cases of those perspectives and those lived experiences i'm glad to hear that you actually say that and have some experiences for the chronic illness per se but glad that you recognize the advantages the benefits of those experiences that you were able to bring to this line of research as a person who dealt with a chronic illness myself as a teenager I'm a childhood cancer survivor. But most recently, many people who are close to me know I had a really bad skin accident that broke my shoulder and left me with limited mobility for quite a while. I'm still in the healing process right now, but I couldn't type and, you know, write and even dress myself at a certain point in time because of the pain and the limited mobility that I had. So I definitely know from both ends of how that experience can impact your performance and particularly even your identity, right? From both a positive and a negative way, I think from the childhood cancer aspect, it gave me a renewed motivation. Like I wanted to achieve even more. So it was like a positive experience, but this most recent accident, it was it negatively impacted my productivity, right? Because I couldn't do a lot of the things that we do as researchers and type in and work on my papers and things like that. Also, this is a conversation for another day, but dealing with the workplace combination process was a nightmare. So that's something that organizations definitely need to improve as we think about disability awareness and accessibility. But let me move on. I talked a little bit about some of the barriers that I faced when this most recent accident. But in general, what are some of the major barriers that people with disabilities have identified to their full participation in the workplace?
1: I would say the major barrier that comes up in the literature is around hiring. So there is a disability employment gap. People with disabilities are employed at a lower rate than people without disabilities. And the research shows that some of it is the employer attitude. There's some interesting studies like the resume audit studies where we have two candidates, they're the same, but one has a disability. And when you present those to employers, hiring managers, they're not as attracted to the people with disabilities. And I mean, that's just one example. Field studies seem to also show that people with disabilities have a harder time getting employed. They tend to be employed in lower level jobs, so more service jobs or blue collar jobs. Those are the jobs where they will be sort of last hired and first fired if there's an economic recession, which of course we've had with the pandemic. We certainly had some contraction around that. Negative attitudes from supervisors and coworkers can limit career growth. Employees with disabilities face stereotypes, negative expectations. And so one of the things that they found is that organizations are offering more training for managers. That helps with the manager piece because managers need more support and help around, how do I deal appropriately with people with disabilities? But the coworkers, the coworkers it's a little bit harder and so with coworker issues people with disabilities can end up feeling socially isolated you know they're not making the developmental networks and the sort of the give and take the informal give and take that helps when you're in organizational life like you need a favor from someone or you you want to get some insider gossip information from someone if you don't have the social ties it can be a little bit harder for people And those relationships are really a prerequisite for career advancement. And so I think that's an item that's come up. Now, performance ratings, you asked about barriers. I'd say with performance ratings, it's kind of surprising that studies have shown performance ratings for people with disabilities, employees with disabilities, are actually higher. And there's some question as to whether or not that is just the norm to be kind and sort of a paternalism. They feel sorry for them or whatever. One of the articles I was looking at recently talked about the preponderance of wheelchair users in those studies and that wheelchair users, it's very visible. They tend to have, they get more sympathy because you can see it. So I don't know if the studies that have been done in that area are fully representative of what really happens. There's also differences depending on what type of disability people have. So physical disabilities have less trouble than people with mental disabilities, as you might expect. And I feel like we're expanding more now to research that includes neurodiversity and people with mental illness. So I'm hoping that we're going to see more, more nuanced findings in that area.
0: Thank you so much for breaking it up. Because in one episode, as with all of the episodes that I do, there's so much nuance and intersectionality with all of these topics. And so it is important we're not trying to say one outcome is representative of the entire communities. So I really do appreciate that nuance that you just gave us about visibility of disability or invisibility of disability and such forth. In 2011, the World Health Organization stated that employment rates for people with disabilities are around 40% of the overall employment levels and twice the unemployment rates for those who are not disabled. Do you think things have gotten better, stayed the same, or perhaps gotten worse?
1: The rates have moved around, partly in response to the pandemic. So the most recent work that I've seen on this, first of all, uses Bureau of Labor Statistics data from 2020, and they note that 30% of people with disabilities are employed compared with 74.6% of people without disabilities. So there's still a pretty big employment gap. The employment gap between people with disabilities and without disabilities increased up to 2015. So like say from 2010 to 2015, and then starting in 2015 to 2019, the gap narrowed. And that's because the labor market was tight. But then 2019, of course, the pandemic came and we started laying people off. And so I think that the layoff phases actually impacted people with disabilities more because they're they tend to be as i said in those service jobs blue collar jobs they are the last hired and the first fired so the pandemic erased the gains and exacerbated the disparity particularly around employment and then the wage gap has stayed about the same they've looked at the wage gap for people in remote work versus people in on site work and it's remained fairly similar. I mean, there's still a gap. You would think now that everybody's working at home, we could maybe erase some of that, but that doesn't seem to have happened based on the data.
0: Thank you for that. And actually led into one of my questions I wanted to ask you, because it seems to me, particularly from mainstream media, that the pandemic was a silver lining for people with disabilities, because again, people didn't have to show up at work. But based on the research findings that you just shared, it would seem that that's just more of a myth versus something that is actually empirically founded in the literature. Would you agree with this? Pandemic has been a silver lining for employment for people with disabilities.
1: I'm going to give you an ambiguous answer on that. What the data seems to show on that is that there's some mixed gains. A recent chapter by Lisa Schur and colleagues studied employment losses during the pandemic, and they found they were using an intersectional approach. So they found that white and black women with disability experienced greater employment loss compared with white men without disabilities. And they, of course, also pointed out that hourly and contingent and lower wage employees were more likely to be fired, you know, which I just mentioned. But there are some improvements in employers' attitudes regarding the viability of work from home because they suddenly had to pivot very quickly when the pandemic came, you know, to having people working at home. And I think they were able to see that work can still get done, employees can still be productive. There are some studies that actually show employees are more productive working at home. So I think there's been some optimism that we now know how to work at home and that we can do it better. Disability advocates have been asking for a long time for the ability to work from home as an accommodation. And they were often told by employers, oh no, too disruptive, can't do it, bad. And then I think it was sort of a mixed blessing when suddenly everybody needs it and employers make it happen. And it's like, oh yeah, no big deal. It was a big deal. It was a lot of infrastructure that had to change. But jobs have been redesigned now. And the thinking is that will give employees with disabilities more opportunity to have different jobs One thing that has been pointed out in the literature, though, is that it's only a certain kind of job. It doesn't mean they're going to get more career advancement. It just means there's more jobs available because you can now work at home. Thank you for clearing that up. One of the things that I
0: like about your research is that you don't just focus on identifying some relationships between X and Y and all those type of things, right, with respect for people with disabilities, but you and your co-authors have actually focused on the treatment of people with disabilities. And so what have been some of the most important things you've learned from doing this work and by taking this perspective?
1: So taking the perspective of treatment, kind of like at the 30,000 foot level, I think it really focuses our attention on social interactions. And so you think about the social model of disability, which would argue that disability is not an attribute of the person, it's really an attribute of the interaction Between the person, the other people in the environment, the context. And so, someone who is disabled in one context may not be disabled in another context when supports and accommodations are available. And so, I think the treatment piece really has you thinking about what happens in that social interaction. And so, along those lines, I've been becoming increasingly interested in universal design because universal design focuses on. How do we make often a physical space, but it's not, you know, if you look at universal design for learning, it's also looking at practices and policies. How can we change the design of things to actually make it that everybody can access it without special accommodation? And so I've been very curious about how organizations might be able to adopt that perspective in more than just the architectural way. I mean, yeah, we all have curb cuts and ramps, but. What are we doing about our work design? One of the things that I thought was interesting from that perspective is that organizational context matters. So specifically policies that recognize disability issues and that this research space really tends to look at how are people treated and then what can we do to improve how they're treated? It's also been important in that research to acknowledge that different disabilities have different features and characteristics And I think most disability researchers know that. You've got certain populations, whether it's vision impairment, hearing impairment, mobility impairment, mental illness, they're kind of separate. Even though there are some very common disability issues that we can talk about at a very high level, I think there's been a call to make sure that we study specific populations and maybe do some comparisons between different groups.
0: I love that call for research of studying specific populations because as researchers, we know how to maneuver through the review process. But we also know that I would say that we're at a point where sometimes reviewers are not as educated as well on the nuances in the different contextual aspects of these populations. So when they see a disability study, they're like, oh, what, you know, that we already have a disability study that found everything that we need to know. But as you brought up, it is really important that we look at these populations with distinct lenses. And so that for our scholarly community to be more open out there about reviewing papers where we respect individual populations and don't just reject on the ground like this is not novel, just because there was a disability article published on people with hearing disabilities versus vision disabilities and so forth. So I appreciate you pointing that out. I also want to go back to a point that you made in your last answer about universal design and what organizations can do. And so a lot of leaders listen to this podcast and some of them may have been thinking about universal design. And again, moving just from architecture types of design, what are some suggestions you may have for them as they consider universal design at a more high level way and not just in building codes and those type of things?
1: I've been focused on how to use it for training and onboarding And it's partly coming from the perspectives in universal design for learning, which has a set of guidelines and criteria around how information is presented. We really don't do that in organizations. Like when it's time for you to come and get trained or socialized, we have the stuff and we give it to you. And hopefully it fits your proclivities, your learning style. It seems like if we would spend more time thinking about how do we present this in a way that it works for everybody? I mean, certainly the documents are sort of an obvious place. That's where universal design for learning comes through. But I wonder about job design features as well. And if there's some way to reconsider how jobs are designed so that people who perhaps right now are getting accommodations and have to go through the whole kind of ADA and that whole process, what if we could just make it that the job was accessible For everybody, and no one had to come and tell us, I've got this situation, I've got this disability, because that just creates a whole layer of issues around disclosure and identity and stigmatization. But I think it's a much more nuanced and detailed view of disability. And I think unless an employer has a larger population of people with disabilities, they're not going to think about it. And I would also argue that employers do have a larger population. Of employees with disabilities, they just haven't outed themselves. So there's a whole set of disabilities where people have found workarounds to make things happen. They might not even be classified as disabled. And if we could think about how do we actually make jobs more accessible for everybody, that would be the universal design perspective. I have to mention, I've been a little bit surprised that I have not been able to find a lot in the literature yet that talks about universal design and like sort of HR practices. And you know, as a researcher, you see that and think, oh, is this just a dumb idea? Or am I just the first one to get there?
0: I think it's a great opportunity. And so for our researchers out there, take note because this is a very fruitful area and a place where a lot of contributions could be made and they're needed as well. So I'm glad that you brought up identity in your last answer, because as an identity researcher myself, I am very intrigued with this concept and understand how important it is for people. And in general, there is a sentiment from the general public that, you know, if someone's disabled or there's this community of disabled people, it's like, oh, what was me? You know, it's it's, this pity. It's like, oh, well, we should be able to change it, maybe medical advances and things like that. However, for many people, and again, we're not paying the broad brush because there's always diversity even within groups and communities. But for many people, there's a great sense of pride that they get from identity. So for example, many years ago, many, many years ago, I worked with deaf people and the deaf community has a long history. They have their own culture. It's just, you know, a beautiful culture. And uh, there's a lot of pride for being within the deaf community. So could you talk about, particularly for leaders out there and and just the general public in general, about how we think about the intersection of identity and disability?
1: I would definitely agree. Identity is an important feature. So. Disability and chronic illness are considered major events that change a person's identity. So it's going to depend, you know, if you were born with the condition or if you acquire it. But in either case, people, it does become part of your identity. Like you mentioned, the deaf community, especially the big D, capital D deaf community. I think they've been very good about trying to build a sense of solidarity across their group and it's a source of encouragement and empowerment for them. Other groups, I think it's harder. I mean, you mentioned cancer earlier. I think there are groups of cancer survivors. There's groups that form around that. And all is certainly coming from the chronic illness communities. seems like all the chronic illness groups have advocacy groups, but not everyone joins those. There's some people who feel like the identity piece It's like, yeah, I happen to have epilepsy or MS or Crohn's disease or, and, you know, I don't need to hang out with other people with Crohn's disease because we're just going to sit around and whine about how difficult our lives are. I actually heard some of that when I was collecting my data for my dissertation, which was kind of a long time ago. But the identity piece, actually, there was just an interesting article put forward by Stephen Bohm and a colleague that talks about the system in Germany. So in Germany, if you are going to receive disability benefits, you have to be certified and you get a card that says you are severely disabled. And you have to show that card in some instances to get certain benefits. They were focusing on how the labeling influenced people's own identity around how they feel about themselves. Because you basically, it's like having a, you know, a letter on your forehead. And so I think, I think the identity piece is something people have to work through and think about how do I, you know, do I feel proud of my identity, my illness identity, or is it something I try to hide? I also think some of it will depend on how stigmatizing the condition is. So I happen to have lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. No one knows what it is. So I can like walk around and tell people I've got lupus and it's not really a big deal. They don't know what it is. But if I were to walk around and say I have HIV or even things like epilepsy, where there's a chance I could have a seizure any moment, and I'm not even sure that's true for people with epilepsy, but that's always the fear that you tell me you have epilepsy. Ooh, mm, you know, I, and I do think public attitudes are becoming more open on these items, but still the level of stigma and even your own responsibility regarding your illness. Like, say you have lung cancer and you've been a smoker for 30 years, you may have more sort of identity stuff going on than someone who is a childhood cancer patient through no fault of their own.
0: And so, again, even in my next question, I think you've talked about it a little bit, but if you care to elaborate, perfectly free to do so. I wanted to know about perhaps what you feel employers or general public most commonly misunderstand or get wrong in their thinking about disabilities.
1: Gosh, I think a lot of people don't think about disabilities because unless you have a reason to, you know, you have a a coworker with disability, you know, I think for a lot of us, you simply don't see it. So it's out of sight and out of mind. And so in that respect, I think people are just not grasping the prevalence and that a lot of people have disabilities that you may not be able to see. They may not be disabilities that require accommodation. And so that's another reason why you wouldn't know about it. People have found ways to manage their disabilities. They have their own coping strategies. It doesn't mean that disability is not a factor. It is, but they have figured out how to make it shit in with everything else. So I think that's one area where the general public could do a better job. And maybe us as researchers and advocacy organizations could try to do a better job as well regarding the range of items that fall under kind of disability, even if they're not the kind of disability that someone gets an accommodation for, where they have to go to HR and fill out forms. So that would be a main one. And we mentioned earlier, just understanding that the different types of disabilities will have some different experiences. I'd say really paying attention to the individuals instead of just saying, you know those people with disabilities as a whole category. So what is the situation with the people that you know or you work with? What are some things that could help them? And what's their daily experience like? I think HR people could really benefit from that. But I think HR professionals are trying to get a more fine-grained level of analysis on what do my employees really need given their specific kind of conditions and affordances and things like that.
0: Thank you for that. So we talked about universal design earlier in terms of making workplaces more accessible for people with disabilities. Are there other things that you think people, again, particularly leaders should do to make our environments more accessible? Because again, it's not just about awareness. Knowledge is great, but we also need to make changes (laughs) for people to improve their experiences. So in addition to the concept of universal design, are there others?
1: Training is always the sort of the go-to solution. And I think the right kind of training can definitely help managers know, get more comfortable with how do I manage disability and chronic illness situations? And thinking about how can we give training to employees, sort of the rank and file employees. I find here in my job, We tend to resort to training and employees are of the mindset like, oh, geez, more training. How to have a training that actually resonates and isn't just a check the box exercise. I don't necessarily have a good answer on that because I think we often do revert to check the box. Like We have to do diversity training every year and you check the box. And it's partly because of how it's administered that it comes through an online system and it's got silly multiple-choice questions at the end. I have seen examples of employers using apps that can be helpful. So I think there's sort of a whole set of tools that are available to HR practitioners that can be rolled out to support managers and employees. The example I saw of that was actually from Australia. It was focused on neurodiverse employees. But I think there's a lot of potential there maybe even in the AI space, thinking about how do we support managers and employees? And how do you make it that it doesn't have to become a disability accommodation process? Because no one likes those. That's an area where I think we could do more. The universal design would be like a job design piece. I'd like to see more done around, what would you call it? Almost like social engineering. I know that's not the best term to use, but The idea that we need to give people more opportunity to network and be mentored and have supportive relationships. And if we don't put people together somehow, I think that becomes harder. And particularly for people who are working at home and people with disabilities tend to be socially isolated anyways. That was even before pandemic and work from home. What can we do to try to build social ties and to build a supportive culture, sort of a culture of inclusion and belonging that doesn't necessarily have to call out, hey, all you people with disabilities, you know, come join this thing, but just have everybody trying to improve their social ties. I'm not actually exactly sure how to do that because in these days with a pandemic and people working at home, it can be really hard to build those social ties through a Zoom screen.
0: So one of the things that I've seen as well where organizations have tried to become more accessible is even in the application process. It's typically you fill out something online, but with people who have certain types of disabilities, I've seen dyslexia being one of those ones. Filling out an application is a much more challenging thing for them without any types of accommodation. So being able to provide video, resumes, or things like that where you can just speak versus having to fill out forms. That's a way that I've seen some organizations try to become more accessible. And this is obviously before people even get into your organization, right? It's kind of like trying to make yourself open for different types of employees, even before they become an actual employee of your organization. Another thing that I have seen some employers do is provide all of the things that they will ask employees upfront so that people can prepare, because again, people in different communities respond much differently to interview questions right, and things like that. And so many organizations, it's kind of like this gotcha moment. It's like, well, we're not going to let them know what we're going to ask them. We want to make sure they're like on point and give us answers. But yeah, again, looking at the disability research, people with varying types of disabilities, that could be a disadvantage to a group of population if they didn't have the time to process, perhaps even use the technology that they may need to use in order to get that process and done beforehand. And so those are other examples of ways that organizations have tried to, again, redesign their whole process of recruitment and selection and recruitment to make it more accessible for people with disabilities. And so as we come to a close, I want to ask you, what are some of the questions in the disability research that you hope to investigate either yourself or that you hope we as a community can investigate to move our knowledge forward in this area?
1: I've been looking at where the field is going and I have been impressed at the recent emphasis on neurodiversity. It's there's a special issue coming out I think with a call for papers is sometime this fall. There's a recent book that came out from actually I actually have it right here. It is Suzanne Broyer and Adrian Calella on neurodiversity in the workplace and there's just been much greater Awareness of neurodiversity is interesting to me because I don't, I admit I have not thought of neurodiversity as a disability. I can see how the disability umbrella can be expanded to cover it, but it's interesting to see this work coming through. I'll be watching for that. And I think there's a lot going on with mental illness as well. And I know neurodiversity sometimes gets lumped with mental illness, but it's a lot of researchers are like, wait, 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 these are different things. So the mental illness space, I think there's more going on there and thinking about what can we do to make sure people with mental illness are included in the workplace? And then how far do we take that? Because there's people with intellectual disabilities. And at some point, there's a line where, okay, it's really hard to fit this person into a sort of a normal job. How do we do that? I think those are going to be areas where you see more research coming out. And then also just the deepening of research about these specific populations, the deaf and hard of hearing community, the low vision community, the mobility community. And so finding more nuanced, more fine-grained research in those areas and particularly empirical research, ones that are using data sets. There are empirical studies that are often qualitative, like tell me what it's like being a person with X. And those are interesting to an extent, but it just makes it very hard to come out with types of research findings that you would have if you would say you had an empirical study, even with a control group. There are great examples of those. I think they require very robust research teams, very robust university resources so that you can buy the data sets or you have like the phalanx of GAs that can help you. And so there are certain people that we look to for those kinds of studies and bless them for being there that they're able to do these large data sets, but the field could really use those. And those of us who are more in the qualitative space like I am, your work is valuable as well. Looking at what do we need to know to understand the experiences of these employees or these hiring managers? And you know how can that feed into some empirical studies that HR managers can really use to think about how do we improve our policies? How do we improve employment for people with disabilities?
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Beattie, for joining me in the guest chair today to enlighten all of us about disability awareness and accessibility. I encourage everyone to go out and buy Dr. Beattie's edited book, The Gruder Handbook of Disability and Management, and I wish you continued success with all of your future endeavors.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family and leave us a favorable review and rating so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, the Philadelphia Ballet. Please consider purchasing a subscription or tickets to their amazing ballets and become a donor to support their mission to bring the art of ballet to the broadest audience possible. For more information, please visit their website at www.philadelphiaballet.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.